I'm Tammy Faraday, and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about exceptional people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit, and grace. Stephen John Thompson is a distinguished leader and tech executive whose job it is to find the most elite talent in artificial intelligence for the world's most cutting-edge technology and consumer companies, including Nike, Amazon, LinkedIn, Apple and Google. So it might be reasonable to assume Stephen was born into a beautiful family with a silver spoon in his mouth, had an Ivy League education and that his stratospheric career trajectory was written in the stars. But this is Brave Journeys, my friends, and we all know by now that that's not how this extraordinary man's life began. You see, at nine years of age, Stephen was abandoned with his four younger siblings in a Nevada motel by his drug-addicted mother. His childhood was filled with abuse, violence, a revolving door of men, neglect, foster homes, juvenile hall, and a poverty so extreme, it's seriously remarkable he survived. And yet, he has done so, so much more than just that. One of the toughest things and one of the lessons I'm really trying to share with my children is learning from others' failures. And if you can do that, if you really, really can do that, Tammy, and I think that's what you're doing with your listeners when they listen to your podcast, is trying to learn from other folks, either successes or failures. And if I could show that with my children, I think that is a huge success. So learning from others' mistakes has been really good if you can take that and absorb that and use it in your own life to the betterment. Today, apart from being a giant in the tech recruitment space, Stephen is a board member of Students Rising Above, a not-for-profit organisation that is dedicated to the cultivation and development of extraordinary youth who are low-income, first-generation college students who've demonstrated a deep commitment to education and strength of character in overcoming tremendous odds of poverty, homelessness and neglect. This is Stephen's story. Stephen, welcome. That's my opening line. Welcome. <laughs> you can respond. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So we're going to put the frivolity aside because I think I could laugh with you for an hour, but your story is replete with pain and profundity and so many things that I want to talk to you about because you are an inspirational individual. I want you to please finish this picture off for me. It's January 1980. You're at the Super 7 Motel in Reno, Nevada. You're nine years old. You're the eldest of five children. You're trapped in that motel room with your three younger brothers and your baby sister. It's Monday. You haven't seen your mother now for two days. You have next to no provisions. The electricity's out. The television's gone off. And you're left in the dark. Yes. Thank you for that. It's a When you read the words, it's uh, quite a reminder of what was happening at the time. We were definitely in the dark, alone, and not sure of where we're going to go forward. And so I think like anybody at that age, but I think me, especially at that age, I was more worried about what next moves I would make because how that would affect my mother. Every next move I would make would make something either good or bad for her. And two was, had I made the right decisions after I made the decision of what I needed to do next? That's probably something I carried with me for a very long time in life. So I was old enough to really appreciate kind of what I did and what I didn't do. So it was quite a profound moment in my life. Of course. You finally, after a lot of soul searching, as you indicated, you were very, very concerned about the impact that contacting anybody would have on your mother. How terrified were you when you finally made the decision to ring the front desk of the reception? You know, we're in this hotel room that's not bigger. I'm in a hotel room today, but it's much smaller than this hotel room that I'm in. And I really talked to my brother, my younger brother, who was the next oldest, and we discussed it. So, you know, I'm nine and he's probably six or seven and we're discussing it. And he was like, we've got to wait. And I was saying like, you know, at this point we had water, 
we had gone through our provisions. We had these what were called vanilla wafer cookies, which we kind of doled out, broke them in pieces and gave them. We didn't, uh, my sister was running out of diapers, or I think we had one, one diaper left. We had no clothes, so it wasn't like I could put some clothes on and go to the store and find something and get something, or in many cases, that we would probably steal something to eat. So we were really trapped there. So I had to make a call to the front desk. And I knew was, once I picked the phone, I knew that everything would change. Because one of the rules that my mother had at the time was that we didn't bring outsiders into our private affairs. That's why we waited two days before we did anything. So it was a, it was a pretty dramatic call. And you do make the call, and then the police arrive with the lady from reception. Stephen, what happens next? So before she gets there, I call her and I say, hey, I use my mother's voice and I say, hey, we have a problem in the room. Could you come over? And she goes, well, what's the problem? I go, well, it's probably better if you just come over and see it. So she comes over. She opens the door and she sees five children sitting on the bed, me being the oldest. And she's stunned. And she said, you know, where is your mommy? And and, uh, and I said, uh, she's gone. And so for a moment there, she's stunned. And there's this woman, this probably this 40-year-old woman in a flannel shirt and jeans. And she's just kind of blown back. I'm sure she's blown back because the door hasn't opened in two or three days. It's probably a little bit musty because my one of my brothers had peed the bed. So it was just one of those situations. And she said, well, I'll be right back. And she shut the door and went and called the police. And then the police came. And when the police arrived, they really were looking for my mother and were probing us as if we knew where she was. And it really started to occur to them once they started rummaging around the room and looking around that we weren't lying and that she was gone. And a kind of a look on their face was a look of horror. They turned from being kind of very aggressive probing to very thoughtful and trying to comfort us. Then a couple of minutes later, they came and wrapped some blankets around us. And we opened and walked out to the parking lot. And the parking lot was filled with other rooms of people looking at us because there was police cars in front of our room. And you could just see everybody just looking at us. And we all just rolled into or walked, strolled into uh, the police cars at the time. And so for me, it was a very painful moment because I thought my mother was coming. I wasn't supposed to call people. Um, And now the police are there and now we're moving. And so how is she going to find us? Where is she going to be? How is she going to locate us? So that was what was in the back of my mind at that moment. And you know, what strikes me is that despite the heartbreaking reality of picturing you with your siblings in the motel room with no food and no provisions and in your underwear, what you'd already lived through with your mother, Brenda, was possibly even worse than that fateful day. So Stephen, can we go back to your life before you were abandoned? Because the first nine years of your life involved constant movement, poverty, neglect and instability. You lived with your single mother who followed whatever man she was involved with at the time. But a man that loomed large was a gentleman by the name of Gus. And he was one of your mother's partners and he was the biological father of three of your younger siblings. And he was violent and he was cruel And like your mother, he had a partiality for partying. And you write in your as-yet-unpublished memoir that you so generously shared with me, all I knew was that the green liquid and the needle seemed to make Gus and Mum feel better. And when they felt better, they would be nice to me. What would it mean for you if your mother and Gus were high? And alternatively, what did it mean for you when they didn't have drugs? Yeah, you know, it was the 70s. A lot of folks were coming back from being overseas in Vietnam. Um, It was a pretty tough war. There was a lot of civil disobedience and a lot of violence and actually protest. And so one of the things coming out of the 60s into the 70s there was heroin. And there was apparently a lot of them. Now, you know, me being who I was, very little at the time, I didn't have any clue about it. it. I saw needles on the counter and they were needles on the counter. That's all I knew. And I brushed my teeth or whatever I did to get around those or use the bathroom. But for me, it was a really tough time because I'm sure, and I look back on it now, but when you're probably not on heroin, you're probably not very nice. You're probably looking for your next fix. And that was probably the engagement that I got with my mother at the time and her husband, Gus. And so when they weren't high and on heroin, they were really, he didn't like me so much. But my younger brother, you know, he liked a lot. But when they weren't when they weren't high, they were not to be around. And so for me, it was very important just to be quiet 
and just to be as tiny as I could in that presence. And then when they were high, on contrast, they were very nice. They were very agreeable or they were asleep and they were doing their own things and like allowed me to go do and run around and do what I wanted to do. So those were the contrasts. And I think that really shaped a lot of who I am today. Yeah. And hunger was all too common in your early childhood. And in the developed world, we're so flippant about what it means to be hungry. We don't understand what it actually means to be clinically hungry. Gus often imprisoned you in the room that you shared with your brother, Dana. How bad, Stephen, did the hunger get? And what did it compel you to do? Well, I mean, in the book we talk about it, it's pretty gruesome. So I'll leave it to the book when, when I release that. But I think what it's compelled me to do, one was I was so hungry. I would just sit there in the room and, you know, look around the house. If there was something on the floor, I would eat it. Because Gus and Brenda were so high, they would forget many times to feed me. So I was almost like a dog, right? You just, oh my God, we forgot to, to feed Stephen. But I think at the end of the day, it kind of made me a hoarder of stuff. I became a hoarder of food if I could. I could try to store some stuff if I got it, wouldn't try to eat it all. In the book, it gets a little bit more descriptive, but I think I was always scared about my next meal. And so I was ravenous is, is probably is probably a bad word, but I was just always hungry. And whenever I ate, I would eat it all or try to store a little bit away for another day. Your mum leaves you at your grandmother's house and she absconds because the police had come looking for her. And you note when you're there that things were blissfully uneventful. Your grandmother, I believe, was a young-ish woman for a grandmother, and she had two younger children of her own. And things were sort of calm, and you hadn't known calm until one day your grandmother gets very sick and seems to pass away in very quick succession. And you and your brother Dana were taken to foster homes and separated at this point. So at six Mm -hmm. years of age, gosh, you were so tiny. When I think about that, what, six years of age? You wake up in a strange place and you're frightened and you're despairing. You're without your family. You're surrounded by people, but you are completely alone. And you say, I'm six years old and I feel like a prisoner of war. Stephen, can you describe for me what it's like to wake up in a strange bed, be separated from everything familiar and everyone you love? Uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, I put my head back there. I think it was probably one of the hardest things to do in life is to be away from your mother, your grandparents or your grandmother, people you knew, and even your sibling. Um, and I had one sibling at the time. And so you're, that's who your whole world is. And I don't think any parent, yourself or any person around the world knows when they have kids, that's who their life are. I mean, you could have grandparents. Where your grandparents aren't around for a year, your kids might forget who their grandparent is, you know, just because they're not around. It's what's happening on the day-to-day. And so for me to not have that parent around was really hard. And so one of the things that I got from that is I would cry at night, and I would cry myself to sleep in this little room. And I was five or six years old, and we stayed in this um, foster home. We lived in the basement, but they had rooms up top, but we lived in the basement. It was a really weird situation. The foster home would show, oh, yeah, there's these great rooms for these kids to stay. But yet we were down in this basement at these different beds. So I would wake up sometimes crying, and sometimes the other kids would come and hit me to tell me to shut up from crying. And so what I did at that time is I said to myself, I had to believe in myself because no one else was going to. And for me, that was something I took many years later and remembered. It's, it's something I remember very well, but there is no way to describe when you're five or six years old, you're alone without your family. I wish I could tell someone because even you know crying and all that, even when that's all done, you're still there by yourself. So I had to tell myself what I needed to do was to believe in myself, push myself, and you're going to get through this. But you speak of belief and you speak of being six years of age and knowing that you needed to believe in yourself. I've got to ask you this because this to me is mind-blowing. Like, this is mind-blowing. How does desperation and desolation transform itself into resolve for you? Because, Stephen, that's what distinguishes you almost from everyone else on the planet, genuinely. I understand we haven't had the same story by any stretch But I do understand the determination and the drive and the righteous anger and the fortitude to almost achieve yourself out of your predicament. That makes perfect sense to me. What I don't get 
is the self-belief from such a young age when everything, and I mean everything, was stacked against you? I really didn't know how much stuff was stacked against me. I think sometimes when you're a child, you can believe in things that aren't true. Um, you know, I, today I work in technology, and we talk about these kids coming out of college that are software or computer programmers, computer scientists, and they're building stuff, and they don't know that what they're trying to do can't be done. So they end up doing something, and they disrupt the whole ecosystem. And when I was that age, I didn't know that I was going to have all these hurdles that I ended up having. I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to do some of the things I was supposed to do. I just kept pushing myself forward, pushing myself forward, pushing myself forward because I had nothing else to rely on. And I think that is what really set me apart from other people. I just kept going forward and I didn't stop. And no matter how much what the failure was or the success was, I just kept pushing. I think a lot of people would tell you that know me, that's probably very true. Like They're surprised that I just don't see failure in, in that way. So for me at that child, just because all these barriers were in, step, in, in my way, I didn't really know they were barriers. I just know I needed to keep believing myself and keep pushing myself. I was kind of stubborn that way. Well, it's not stubborn. I mean, it's remarkable. And that's why I'm saying, like, I'm not just talking about this dogged determination that you clearly have and this strength of character that you clearly have, but it is that self-belief. You really believed that something wonderful was going to come of your life, which thank goodness comes to pass. But I often, with my guests, try and inhabit their minds and at the various stages that they're at in their lives. And you were tiny. You were so tiny. And you're very, very clear, not just in the book, but also in your TED Talk about knowing that you just had to believe in yourself. I mean, for me, genuinely, that's uncanny. It's almost ethereal. It doesn't seem like it's possible from your lived experience to know that you are worth something better than that and that something good was on its way. I just love that. Sorry. <laughs> I had to punctuate this conversation with that because to me that that's it's magical. It's magical. Well, thank you for saying that. People say it's magical and I, I think it's great. Sometimes it's hard to believe that because it's just the way I believe. I get that. So you're then removed from that foster home and you're taken to live with your mother's sister, Weida. And this is a veritable haven for you. She and her partner, Jerry, take care of you and love you as their own. Your brother's there as well. You go to school. You enjoy home-cooked meals. You have a proper summer for the first time in your life. There's beautiful references to your skin getting very pruney in a, I think it was a public swimming pool. And then about 18 yes. months later, you get word that Gus is coming to collect you. Gus, who had been this formidable, really terrifying, intimidating character, and he was going to bring you back to your mother. And that news isn't met with any delight on your part. But when you see your mother, she's pregnant now with her fifth child, your baby sister, Tierra. And not long after that, Gus decides to leave your mother, which leaves her heart broken. But despite her devastation, she seems to actually get her act together during that time. So she secures work, she's putting on weight, which suggests to you that she's probably not using. It was probably, in fact, the most stable time that you'd ever had with her. And the reason I'm discussing this is because we've alluded to the fact that your mother certainly had failings, right? The police weren't looking for her because she was living a pristine existence. She was a drug user. She had shoplifted. She had stolen. And very tragically, she had gotten into prostitution in order to, to feed the family and to feed the habit. But when we put your mother's failings aside or her weakness of character or however you want to characterise that... When you grow up, Stephen, you certainly register that your family's replete with fatherless children. It's something that seriously goes down the line of your family. What do you make of that intergenerational loss? I'm not sure if I've really thought of it that in that way, but I think we have suffered, and that's probably good and bad. I think we've relied on other folks and other male role models who have given us some kind of center and goals and direction. And I think that has been beneficial to all my siblings. But it does say something about us as, as men, and specifically African-American men, that we are having children. And at the time, we were having children, they were having children, and we weren't necessarily taking care of them. Although Brenda might have had many, many failings, she was not there by herself. And she didn't get pregnant by her insemination, right? She didn't, she didn't just go to some place and that happened. There was a man and several men 
that were part of her life. So, you know, for me and for my siblings, I think one of the things that is really important for us is to try to be those fathers to our own children. And it's not easy when you don't, you haven't been raised with a father to show you what are the right steps and hurdles you need to take. But I think we've we, we've grown, and, and I think one of the things that we've grown is we also know that you know you're going to make mistakes. But I think the most important thing for us is to be there, and to be a part of it, and to be someone that your siblings and your children can look up to. So this story is a very sad story, but I also think it's a story that is not unique. I think there is a, a, a great many young men and women out there who didn't have fathers, and that mothers are taking much more of a burden than they need to take or should take. And in Brenda's case, it led to her probably having mental breakdowns when you have five children and you don't have someone as a partner to help you on this journey. My thoughts of her really take a different turn later in my life when I realized some of the things she really must have gone through. When you're eight or 10 years old and your mother leaves you, you're not exactly happy with her um, and you want her back. And when you get to be 28 or 38, you realize that, wow, what are some of the things she really must have faced? And she faced a lot of those alone and by herself. Absolutely. And it is beautiful because as the story unfolds, I mean, we call it a story, it's your life. As your life unfolds, you manage to find that inordinate compassion for your mother and for her plight and for how downtrodden and disadvantaged she was. And when you put it sort of in black and white, what it would be like to raise five children on your own with various fathers and literally be living from hand to mouth. When you have that perspective and you have that insight and you also have that compassion that you bring to the table, you see it in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Your uncle Eugene was a military man. This is your mother's brother. And he turns up to the place that you're living in with your mum and siblings. And even though she was ecstatic at first to see him, things very quickly devolve into hell. And at eight years old, you're awoken by your uncle in the middle of the night and he's bellowing at you to leave the house and to take your sleeping siblings with you. Stephen, what happened that night? Well, that night my mother was going out with some girlfriends and somehow we were over at her Uncle Eugene's house and they had been partying, partying, drinking, whatever they were doing. And, and you know, my Uncle Eugene was really really unique. He was a um, he was in the Air Force. He got out of the Air Force. And when he got out, he, you know, he told us a lot about F-15 fighters and the Blackbird jet that I really knew at the time was the fastest jet in the world. So I really looked up to my uncle. He was really kind of one of the first role models in my life that was a relative and that was close to my mother. So it was really, really nice. But that morning he woke us up. I think he was fairly drunk. And he had had a, an argument with my mother because she was somewhere else. And my mother was with some other girlfriends and they were partying and he was at home. And so he came in the room and woke me up and said, Hey, you need to get out of the house. He used some very choice words, but he asked us, to, he told me to leave and I needed to go find my mom. So as I said, I, I, I understood when men got upset, how you needed to move quickly. So went to find my pants. He says, no, 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 you don't need any pants. Just grab your shoes. So I put my shoes on ready to walk out the door. And he goes, what are you doing? Like, I'm leaving. He goes, no, 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 no. Take all these siblings with you. Take them all. So I woke them up, tried to get them dressed. He told them, no, just get their shoes on. So his girlfriend at the time starts yelling at him. He tells her to be quiet. And so we walk down the steps and he's cussing and screaming and slams the door. So it's the middle of the night in Sacramento. And we uh, start to walk. I think I know where she's at, at her friend's house. And so we walk up about two miles or three miles up the road. So I'm carrying uh, my brother, my younger brother is carrying my sister, who at the time is probably an infant, pretty, pretty small, dark highway. There's no lights. It's just really, really dark. And you can't really say. So we really try to stay to the right-hand side so cars can see us, but they won't kind of hit us. So we're walking, and then cars are coming the opposite way or slowing down. They're going 60, 70 miles an hour, and then they're slowing down to four or five miles an hour looking at us. So we're walking up the street. The car pulls over asked us if we'd like to get a ride with him. And the guy seemed really concerned. I said, no, we're not. Sorry, we're okay. We're going to be all right. And he's like, you sure? And I'm like, yeah, we're fine. And he took off. And then we, we got to my mother's house and we knocked on the door. Our girlfriend opens the door with a look of horror in her face because they were expecting someone else. And when they open the door, they see these five kids and they're all tired and sleepy and cranky and half naked. And my mother just starts screaming. 
and um, and then calls my uncle and they they have it out. But you know that was a pretty traumatic moment for me and my siblings because as I call it was a long walk home, really dangerous, really late at night. Who knows what could have happened to us? And my mother was mad, mad, mad at her brother, and he was mad at her for some reason. The point was is that this leader, this person I really valued, really in a matter of minutes uh, depleted in my vision and in my view. And even today, it's really hard for me to, I, I just probably don't, I can't really have a relationship with him. He's still alive, but I, I just really can't have a relationship with him. From this point onwards, though, your life becomes a fairly untethered nightmare. Your mother was in a very, very bad state. She dictated when you went to school because she was not in a position often to look after the children. Her life descended again into drug use. Often you would actually nominate to stay home irrespective of what your mother's edict was because you knew that your siblings needed to be looked after. There were random men that were spending the night. There were days that you were literally locked out of your home in probably the very hot sun while your mother had various men coming over. So it's pretty bleak. The whole scenario is very, very bleak and you end up living in a car and you share it with a couple that your mother befriends. And I have to, again, paint this picture because unless somebody understands it, they will not be able to possibly comprehend it. There's a hatchback car. This couple that I just mentioned are living in the front of this car, and your mother and her five children are living in the back seat. You know, you just stop for a second and you just contemplate what that actually means. For the majority of people who would be listening to the show, that kind of indigence and poverty and degradation and real dislocation from society is unbelievable. You're sleeping in the back of this car, but then the couple breaks up and your mother then partners with the male of this couple, whose name was Fred, I believe, and they hire a motel room. And I don't mean to be graphic and I certainly don't want to degrade your mother, but you're woken to the sounds of them being intimate. Let's put it that way. And you say that when your mother registers that you're awake, she admonishes you and she demands that you go back to sleep. And you simply can't because there's abject rage and disgust burning inside you. What do these memories do to you, Stephen? I don't think they do much to me today. I don't think so much about those memories. And when you go back and you write a memoir on your life, it is quite traumatic because you're bringing up things that you had really forgotten about or put up on the shelf, as I call it. So for me, that was a really an interesting moment. But what I learned from that is it was really important to value a partner. And I learned so much from my mother's relationship with men on how important a partner was. Even when I started dating girls, when I got older, I was never really that into really trying to be in love with them or making them feel like I was the center of the world because you know, I had seen so many relationships break up. I, I guess I had seen stuff that other kids just hadn't seen. And so relationships to me were just kind of passing fads. And so I think that moment when I look at how that built me as a person, I don't think about it as much, but it probably did solidify who I am around making sure you're going to be with the right person, making sure things are done correctly. Obviously, that situation is one of those situations is just you never want anyone to be in but i think i learned a lot about finding the right partner finding the right time to be intimate finding the right way to do that i don't think children should be exposed to that but because i was exposed to that i have a probably overly (laughs) subjective framework of how to deal with that and you know now i'm married we just had our 20-year anniversary (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you think you're well, just talking we about how you approach relationships so differently and and then you're just you're questioning whether it's 20 years okay this part penelope is not listening 21. to <laughs> yes yes she's not listening right now for me it was about stability and and i think that's what my mother's experience probably brought to me and probably brought to my siblings as much more of a stability in that partner that you just have to have And, you know, I've often asked us this, actually, because it seems like humanity can be divided into two, those who replicate all that they saw. And there were certainly things that were bedded down in your life. There was a lot of violence that you saw. I was going to mention in a moment another partner of your mother's, Will, who was very violent with your mother, and that was really the beginning of the end. 
but you saw all these things. These are kind of neurologically bedded down at a very young age. You didn't adopt those. You didn't mimic that. You completely rejected that. And that's often what sets people apart. It's this ability to have lived through what they've lived through and then to make the decision that they do not want to live that life. But for every Stephen John Thompson, there would be kids that would have seen what you've seen and who would have absolutely replicated that childhood, whether it was being Mm -hmm. violent or whether it was being a deadbeat dad or whether it was being a drug addict or whatever. I mean, you have literally rejected everything that you saw and we're going to get to that. That's the silver lining of this magnificent story. Very nice of you to say. I'm not perfect. I'm sure there's lots of improvement. I'm sure when people listen to this, <laughs> they whiskey for but I, I have some areas that I need to improve on. But I would say I did reject those things and and learn from them. One of the toughest things and one of the lessons I'm really trying to share with my children is learning from others' failures. And if you can do that, if you really, really can do that, Tammy, and I think that's what you're doing with your listeners when they listen to your podcast is trying to learn from other folks, either successes or failures. And if I could show that with my children, I think that is a huge success. So learning from others' mistakes has been really good if you can take that and and absorb that and use it in your own life to the betterment. 100%. I did just touch on Will, who got very, very violent with your mother. Do you remember what he said to you as he was viciously hurting her? Do you remember the words that he said to you? Yes, they were seared into my mind. Um, one night, I was laying in a room with, next to my siblings, and we were all sleeping. And my mother had gone out with her girlfriend. And we were staying in a, her girlfriend's house with her. They came back, and my mother was in a room with this gentleman. Well, we'll call him. We were sleeping, and I because I didn't know they were home. And then I woke up to my mother screaming, and you know, shuffling and things breaking. And so. You just heard her screaming and crying. So me and my brother both woke up. And so we had to go in there. And so I had a bat that I had in the corner of the room. So I grabbed the bat and walked in the room. And uh, this gentleman is over my mother, choking her on the neck on the bed. And I told him to get off of her. I'm going to have to hit him with the bat. And he looked at me with these eyes I remember for a very long time. And he said, sometimes, Steve, you just need to beat a woman. And he stopped. And she, my mother told me to go to bed. It was okay. We were going to be all right. But it was one of those things that was kind of shocking to hear. It's one of the things that just stayed with me. Even if I put the book on the shelf and forget a lot of things in my life, that's one thing I just can't forget. And I remember that for one, someone thinking like that. And two, my mother being involved with someone that would treat her that way. And so those two things really stayed with me. And, you know, as if things couldn't get worse, it's shortly after this that you end up at that motel on East 4th Street, which is the place that your lives really change forever. And Mm -hmm. once the authorities pick you up, you end up shuttling between various foster homes. But your schooling life obviously was not consistent because of the things that we've discussed. Mm -hmm. By the time I went to school, I hadn't really been in school for probably three years. So I was coming in at fourth or fifth grade, and I hadn't been in school three years. My younger brother was coming in second grade, and they said he couldn't read or write. So we were really, really behind in school. So when we arrived, we were always behind trying to learn. And this was the first time in years that we'd had some stability of going to school once Brenda had left us in a hotel room. In fifth grade, so you would have been, I would imagine, 10 years old, an academic assessment is conducted on you. And whilst, as we've discussed, you'd more than understandably fallen behind in some areas, you hadn't exactly had a pristine schooling life, you said you missed almost three years of school, you were at an 11th grade level for listening. What do you think accounted for that almost overdeveloped ability to listen? Yeah, I think my experiences gave it. I mean, I'm sure any of my siblings probably have that as well. Being able to deal with ambiguity around what people are saying and what they're doing, being able to hear tones and what folks say, the language they're using, how they're using it, their body language, you know, so much of communication is nonverbal. And so for me, I saw a lot of that. And so taking these tests and listening, I was on an 11th grade level. I just was just natural for me. I I think that was natural because of all the things I'd been going through, right? We've lived in 
different foster homes. We lived in missions. We'd, I'd see insane people who were talking to themselves all the time. I'd saw men that were very polished who were who knew how to communicate eloquently. Uh, my mother was incredible at manipulation. Of, so she could have an incredible conversation with one person and then go have a very loose conversation with another. She was really unique in that way. So my listening skills were probably at a high level, not to mention that I was probably functioning in many ways as an adult when I dealt with different adults growing up because I was the person that was making or talking to adults or dealing with adults. So I need to understand very quickly what they said and I needed to absorb that. So if men were at our house and they were acting up, I needed to understand, were we safe? Were we not safe? What is this person saying and what they're doing? So I think that attributed to my 11th grade understanding level. What the uh, academics called listening, tell me if I'm wrong, but really it's a hypervigilance that children that are raised in a traumatic situation have to be on the ball. They have to be alert. As you said, they have to be able to hear the nuance in the voice or when the temper is changing or the temperament is changing. They have to be constantly aware of what's about to take place. I've often called it reading the room before you walk into the room because you have to be able to sense calamity and gravity and whether or not you need to save yourself or save your siblings or get the hell out of there. So again, it was interesting that it was classified from an academic standpoint as listening skills. But for me, it was you had this overdeveloped sense of hypervigilance because life was not safe. And when life isn't safe, you don't really have the luxury of being able to not be on the ball. That was the gift I was given from that is being able to assess things. Sometimes my wife, we joke, she'll tell me she had a conversation with someone in a different context and, and she'll explain it to me and I'll tell her what the outcome is going to be or will be and she disagrees with me. And then she comes back and goes, you know what, you were right. And I just think because of that, the many iterations of dealing with those types of things, I got really good at it. So it was a unique skill that, uh, <laughs> to your point, but you know, I would also say Carolee DeWick, who was a Stanford a researcher, made an assessment that children that deal with trauma kind of develop other levels of their brain that allows them to deal with other issues. And I think that's probably a little bit of what I had at the time. No doubt. No doubt. So you're placed in a foster home of a woman by the name of Katie. She's pretty vicious. She is certainly not a foster parent because she's altruistic, it seems. She puts her foster children through ritual humiliations. You run away from that home and you're put into juvenile hall. And compared to all that you'd seen up until that point, it wasn't the worst place you'd actually been in. You say you actually felt quite comfortable there. There was food on tap and there was television and there was stability and there was a warm bed. And you made a promise to yourself in juvenile hall. You actually made two promises to yourself. What were they? Well, as you said, I, I ended up liking juvenile hall. Like many kids at that age who were dealing with the kind of thing I was dealing with, it's kind of a haven because you have a, like a protection of a cell. You're getting three meals a day. There's a schooling. There's books. There's You can play basketball or recreation. But what I told myself was I realized at some point about a month into that that I was by myself. So I told myself one was I, I wasn't going to be alone. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I wanted to find my family to reunite with them, right? Because they were scattered all over. And then I wanted to build a community so I would never have to face this trauma again of not knowing where I was going to have food or know where I'm going to live or be in jail or whatever it was. And so those were kind of the underlining things that I made a promise to myself. One of the things I said to myself too was I was just going to try everything I could and didn't care of the consequences. So my next step in life, I really kind of acted on those wishes that I told myself. You're returned actually after juvenile hall to that same foster home and you just can't bear it and you run away again and you're caught. And when you're caught, you're sent to the Northern Nevada Children's Home, which was known as the home. And this is a place mm -hmm. for children who are orphaned or who'd been abused or who had trouble with the law. And this time, Diana, your social worker, who hadn't been a great champion of yours and had basically told you to suck it up, every time that you had confided in her how bad things were, she basically said, you're lucky that you've got anywhere to stay in the first place, suck it up and just tolerate it. But when you're caught and returned again to that foster family, she then tells you that this is your last chance before prison. And you write, mm -hmm. it didn't cross my mind to ask what I might be sent to jail for. 
What would my crime have been? Wanting love and nurturing after years of shit and neglect? When I read that statement, my heart just broke. It's just like, how much can this little spirit take? How much? You arrive as a 10-year-old boy, as a ward of the state, and you are in clothes that are two sizes too big. And there were many amenities there, but there was no mistaking that this place was absolutely an institution, and it was a last stop before a child is sent to a long-term prison as a juvenile offender. But what's so remarkable is that during this time, you make so many friends. You're going to a consistent school at this stage. You're making a lot of friends. They're arguably going home to their lovely homes and their lovely families. You're going back to the home. How is it to make friends and see how they live in comparison? Going to their homes, seeing their families, seeing the liberties that they're afforded, being able to open a fridge or being able to turn on the television or being able to do things that most children would take for granted in the developed world, things that you were never allowed to do. How do you make sense of all of that discrepancy and not be embittered? I wasn't bitter because I was really excited. I don't want to say I was envious of my friends, but boy, did I appreciate them. And when I started making friends with different people and meeting them and then them take me to their houses and meet their families, the world opened up to me, Tammy. I had never seen some places so much food <laughs> and pantries. One friend in high school, junior high, every time I saw him, he had a new pair of shoes. And I was like, that's incredible. Wow, this guy's got new shoes all the time. He was the nicest guy. And people that played music, that they had pianos in their house. And if they wanted to play, their parents would get them lessons and they could do that. And so for me, it wasn't as much as I felt bad for myself, as much as I, I wanted that. I wanted to, to have that kind of life. I wanted to have that normalcy that I didn't have. I just wanted to have something like that. And so whenever I was exposed to it, I was excited by it. My friend's parents would invite me to go to dinner with them. I loved it. They'd invite me to stay at their houses, go to baseball games. Whenever I could, I say yes. So for me, it was much more of an appreciation than it was envy because I was like, man, I, I've seen the other side and if take advantage of it, you know, be grateful because on the other side, you don't get this. So for me, it was never the envious side of it. And I think people realized that and they even shared more. So I was very lucky to have that. But I also think that temperament helped to expose me even to more people. They wanted to help me and to show me things that maybe I wouldn't have been given an opportunity to see. Because you also weren't a victim. I mean, as far as your mentality goes, this served as an inspiration yeah. for you, as opposed to you saying, I'm Stephen, I've got a chip on my shoulder because life's been shit. You know, it was like, this is actually a template of what I would like to aspire to in my own life. It wasn't something that cannibalized you with misery which is quite remarkable too, really. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I will say to you on that, I never thought I had a problem. So when I went to the home, the only reason I was there is because I was abandoned, not because I had a problem. I didn't think that was my fault. And so I really never wanted to have that attitude. And I think you mentioned my social worker, who probably put a little bit of this in my ear. Her name was Debbie Huff. And she told me to suck it up. I think you called her Diana think, in the book. That's why I called her Diana. Is that okay? Yes, her name... <laughs> That's fine. You can't tell her, Diana. I think Debbie is it. But, you know, we try to protect some folks. But understand. I you just can't diss on my research, Stephen. That's not nice. Yes, no, you did. You did great. You did great. I, I'm, the one who, I'm the one who forgot. When did I call her? Did I go? Yeah. So some people we call them by their names, some people we don't. But when she told me to suck it up, it really resonated with me. And she was right. And she had been with me for years. Like, Steve, just suck it up. You're not going to have the life that your other friends have. You're not going to get a new pair of 501 jeans. You're not going to get bubblicious gum for you every day. I mean, these are little things, but when you're in fifth and sixth grade, they're the world, right? And I was like, you know what? That's right. I'm not going to get it. And so I just need to be appreciative of what I do get. And I need to fight for the things I want. And I need to be appreciative when people expose me to these things. And so I think her telling me to suck it up really put that there. But I also didn't like the mindset of people saying, it must be hard on you. I, I didn't see myself any different from anyone else. I really didn't. Um, I had had some tough times, but I didn't think that I was inadequate in areas. I didn't think that I suffered in areas. I just think that I needed more exposure. And maybe that was probably a unique way of looking at it as well. Absolutely. During your four and a half years at the home, you see other children who are being adopted or fostered to families constantly. But then 
as Mariah sings, and I will not sing for you, a hero comes along (laughs) just before your 15th birthday in the form of a gorgeous widow with two children of her own, a beautiful Mexican lady by the name of Kathy. How did you come to meet Kathy and what did she come to mean to you? Oh, well. I met Kathy through her daughter. So there's my cottage brother, his name was Steve, and he went to live uh, with a family that lived right behind Kathy and Gina. And I met Gina in my sixth grade. She was at the same elementary school. And so through the years I got to know her, we'd go to her house and we would do stuff. We would break dance and stuff, all the stuff that we did as kids. One summer when I was 12 years old, at the home they trained you, and this is very unique, but at the home... We had a class that I had to take on how to interview, and it was an all-summer course. So they taught you how to interview, taught you how to answer questions. They put you on videos. You had to mocking. There was all kinds of stuff you had to do. So I ended up learning how to interview, and then I had to get a job with uh, Kathy at a, for state facilities at a time because they, the state of Nevada gave budgets to hire these teenagers, especially teenagers like me. So I went and worked for her. And it was unique because Catherine would take me to lunch every day. So it was fantastic. If you know me, you know anything about me, I love food. And so you want to get to my heart, food is great. So uh, she took me to lunch every day. But the great thing about Catherine was she had a shared experience. She was the oldest of five children. She was raised in East LA. She went to many different schools. She is extremely smart and very well well read. And she just she grew up poor and just dealt with a lot of things. So I think talking to her, I felt really close to her because I didn't feel like I was talking to someone who hadn't been through something. And so one day she miraculously said, hey, Steve, you know, would you like to live with us? And it really opened my world. I mean, I, I was really thrown back, shocked, humbled. And it's that second thing I wanted was finding my own family, right? And so when she asked me that, I was so shocked. I, I said, yeah, but I, she was shocked that I wasn't more emotional about it. And I learned very early that I couldn't be emotional about things because things failed. It didn't happen for me. And so I didn't want to show that. So through the process of the next couple months, uh, she got to state and she got my social worker and a lot of folks to agree to it. And I ended up moving in with her at the beginning of my sophomore year of high school. And then you, magical you, become class president, the defensive captain of the school football team. You forge many wonderful and enduring friendships. And you finally start to feel, with Kathy and Gina's love, really welcomed in your life. And I want to pause here and I want to find out something, and maybe you've answered it already, but I think it's just too important to uh, gloss over. What made you so fearless and, can I say, unbroken? Impacted, yes. Shaped certainly because of your experiences, but you weren't rendered undone by your start to life because that's worth bottling. That is the epitome of resilience. If you had to speak to a group of young people and to tell them or to try and convey what that is inside of you, what, what is that? I'm not sure what's inside of me that's so different from others, but I will say that I was given a gift of a new beginning. And I was also given a gift of no parameters. And what do I mean by that? Now at this point, I'm with Kathy and I'm, let's say my junior, senior year in high school. And I'd lived with her now two, three years and I'd lived at the home for four years. When I say that there was no parameters, my a lot of my friends I grew up had to do certain things. They were lawyers' sons or they were dentist's sons or their family had a business. They owned a plumbing company or something. And so they had thought that they had to go on in the route of their parents, right? They had to become a lawyer or they had to become a doctor because that's what their parents did. Or they had to go to this college because their parents went to this university and then they were expected to go to this university. And I had no prerequisites. I was open and free to do whatever I wanted to do. And it was a gift because I could really take the time to decide what I wanted to do. If I wanted to go to college, I could go to college where I pushed myself hard. If I wanted to be a plumber, I could be a plumber. Nobody was going to tell me anything different. And when I lived with Catherine, she made it very clear that my life was my life. And so I spoke to a class of eighth grade students, and I said the greatest gift that if someone was going to give me right now is that gift of feedback. 
is that ability to listen to what people say to you at this life. Because between the ages of eight and 18, people are giving you feedback constantly and that you're getting it every day. You're getting it from your parents. You're getting it from your teachers. You're getting it from your uncles, your aunts, friends are all giving you that. And then when you graduate and you get out of college, you get less feedback. Less people are willing to give you feedback. They're, will, they're less willing to share. The key is if you're not open to feedback, then people won't give it to you. I'm sure you, you know friends that every time you tell them, hey, you could do this to help yourself, they don't listen to you. So you stop giving them feedback because they're not listening. And I would tell any eighth grade group of students that they need to be open to that. That's the thing for me. If you were to look of what I did, it's to be open to the opportunities that are around you and be open to change. And if you're open to that, the world's your oyster. If you're always thinking that something's new, if you're always trying to be learned and be curious, as they say in Amazon, if you're always trying to do something bigger and see the bigger picture, the world's just a great opportunity. And that's really what I think Catherine brought to me. And yet, this is makes me smile, okay, and yet your guidance counsellor tells you that your grades aren't strong enough for college to be an option for you. And like I read this and I'm smiling from ear to ear. Obviously, I know what happens, but these are my favourite stories in life. Can I share something with you very quickly? Yes, please. So before I got into television, I'd made a folio of my work and in it, I projected into the future and dared to imagine myself as a successful journalist and the accolades that people may one day feel about what I had achieved. So the way that I did it was that I built what looked like a book you'd buy at a bookstore. And the front cover of the book was called Inside Out, Career of a Political Junkie, because I've always been obsessed with politics. And the leaves of the book was my CV and some articles that I had published. And behind those pages was a VHS. Remember what they were? A VHS was embedded into this book uh -huh. and it had my showreel on it. Anyway, long story short, the reason I'm telling you this is because like all good books that you would buy at a store, it had testimonials on the back. Now, they were all fictitious. I made them all up because it was a future projection. So right. I went to the best in my mind, in my little imagination. Barbara Walters wrote one and Mike Wallace wrote one and Tom Brokaw. And then I wrote one, again, I made it up. Let's be very clear about this, from the International Herald Tribune. And it says, this book gives us an insight into the power of detractors, for it is their very existence that often serves as the greatest propulsion to achieve. And to all Tammy's critics, we owe you. Now, I'm sure that anyone who's listening to this conversation will think that's remarkably arrogant and full of hubris. But basically what it was, was a future prediction of what I hoped I could be if someone took a chance on me. And when you're a 20-something kid, like I was, with a fire in your belly and this burning determination to make something of your life, and nepotism isn't a word that you understand because your surname means nothing to nobody, and you don't come from wealth, and you don't come from power, and you don't come from status, and there's no one to open doors for you or to give you a leg up, and all you've got is your grit and determination, while the world you inhabit tells you over and over again why your dreams are fanciful and unattainable. When I heard your, your counsellor saying, you don't have the grades to go to college, and I knew that you'd never take that as your answer. I love that story because I genuinely think if I look back on my life, there have been so many people that have said, you can't possibly do it. You don't have the pedigree. You don't have the background. You don't have the family. It's so ludicrous, your ambition. And you know better than anyone that the loudest, most ferocious voices of naysayers come from those who don't have an ounce of your courage. Their words hurt, though. You can't say that they don't hurt. But it's this am amazing ability to kind of block it out and become laser-focused on what you want to achieve and you just don't take no for an answer. And that's you. That's the embodiment of you. What gave you that laser focus that you never took no for an answer? Well, I think it goes back to that five-year-old that's in that room that has nothing and wants more. That is who I've always been, and I've always been that person who's pushed like that. So when my counselor told me that I wasn't going to go to college, I thought it was laughable. Of course, my grades were bad. <laughs> my grades were bad, and I was trying to get them better, but that wasn't going to stop me. And that was that fire that kept burning in me that I could be whatever I wanted to be. 
you're right. I think the tractors kind of give you some power. Sometimes people tell me, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do something. And I immediately think, oh, I'm going to do that. And so <laughs> I think the tractors, you're right, give you strength. It's such a great, it's such a great way of thinking. But that's really, for me, what it was. And I knew that uh, the only person that could get in my way was really me. And if I was going to sacrifice to get what I needed. Oh, yeah, I love that. Love it. Well, you do go to university and you do graduate. And on your graduation day, you say, I feel as if there is an emotional volcano in me about to explode. I don't see a 23-year-old man in the mirror. I see that little boy who believed that things would be all right, although he had no evidence. That boy who sat in the corner for hours without any stimulation or attention and waited for a mother who never came. He lost his childhood at an early age and instead developed a deep-seated determination and self-belief. I see him reaching out to me. He's saying goodbye. I observe him deep behind my eyes. I am so happy for you, he whispers, as if he knew that I'd make it all along. Look at you, he continues. You did it. You did it, Stephen. Yes, very lovely you read that. It's one of the, the books, in the book, one of the toughest, uh, I think it took me a couple of days to write that, but it was really how I felt. And I remember that moment when it happened. It was a really emotional time because it, when you tell yourself you can do something, you actually do it and it arrives. There's no better feeling in the world. I'm really grateful for that, that five-year-old. At 24, you and your brother Dana, who was then I think 21, venture off to see your other siblings that you hadn't seen for 13 years. Mm-hmm. How do you remember that reunion? It was great. We pulled up to the house and I saw my next youngest brother. His name's Eugene. And he, he had a birthmark on his on his lip. And you could tell I hadn't seen him in 13 years, but it's exactly the same. Except instead of being like, you know, three foot five, he was six foot six. <laughs> it was a <laughs> he's a monster. <laughs> That's huge. He's just a huge and he and he stood in the doorway and it just it had this beautiful smile on him, lit up lit up the door. And then my brother and my sister. So it was great. And we ran into Gus, who was their father, and he was they were living with him. And he still wasn't that big of a fan of me, <laughs> to say the least. But I had, you know, I had grown to understand him more. And I think one of the things that doing a memoir does, it allows you to reflect not just on yourself, but on others and what they and some of the journeys and struggles they dealt with. And so looking back on Gus, I realized he did something that, that I talked about earlier. He, you know, he went back to pick up his kids and take care of his kids. He wasn't my dad, but he still wanted to take care of his own children. And I commend him for that. And I think uh, that was a really unique moment. It was uh, to, to find my siblings after 13 years for me and my brother Dana to do that. So it was great. And, and it's great to still engage with them. We took a long journey, but I think we're back together and it's, uh, we, we haven't lived together for years, but we're still growing and going. So it was a really, really great moment for, for, for me and I think one for my brother Dana as well. Stephen, what did you learn about your mother, sadly, when you reunited with your siblings? Well, I think what I learned about my mother is she ended up having two more children and she really took care of them. And she told them, she would always put in them that you need to take care of your kids, never give up on your kids. And I think it was, it was really moving. One of my sisters, one of them lives on the East coast. The other one is my sister, Kendra is the youngest. And so she's 18 years younger than me, but she's a spitting image of our mother. And so I think what I learned from that Brenda experience is that life turns lots of different channels, lots of different ways, lots of different directions, but it's kind of what you make of it. And so for her, I'm sure Brenda passed away many years ago, but I'm sure for her to see that a daughter that I never knew she had, who's exactly 18 years younger than me, who I'm, I'm 18 years younger than Brenda, uh, that we're really close today would probably make her happy. That's kind of what I learned is just to be open and not to bring the burdens that you had before with you, just to be open to what the possibilities of the future. After your graduation, you fall in love with Penelope. And the two of you have now been together for 20 years. At least I'll get brownie points for that. Well, we got together for 26 years, I think. But Whoa. yes, we've been married for 20 years. Yes, yes, yes. Beautiful. 
How does she observe the ways in which the past has never left you? So you said that if she does cook, I don't think she often does the cooking, but if she does cook, she'll always make sure that there's a second helping for you. But there were two other things that were really, really telling in your book about things that she accommodates because of the life that you came from. Can you tell me about those quickly? Yes. I think one of the things she laughs at is that it's impossible. So one of the things that I hate being cold. And so in our house today, one of the things that I do is make sure that I can always have heat on even if I'm wearing shorts. And so even if the bill's really expensive, Tammy, and the bill can be very expensive, (laughs) I don't like to be cold. I think the other thing that she probably realizes too or has learned is, is because of the way I was raised, probably a really good networker. So that was something that she had to get used to too because I always was networking and always talking and socializing. Well, piggybacking off the networking superpower that you have, you stumble into recruiting by accident and have been a tech exec recruitment giant for some of the juggernauts of Silicon Valley. We're talking Google, Amazon, LinkedIn. How does that happen? Well, <laughs> well, I think it, it just happened. I mean, you, you work hard in these industries. You get to understand them very well. But I, I think one of the things that I learned very early from Catherine, and which has made me probably be really successful with some of these technology companies, was I always went the more difficult route of understanding technical recruiting. And so one of the things that she said to me was, she goes, Stephen, I want you to do things that others won't. So really worked for me was instead of me going and recruiting for sales and marketing, I recruited for applied researchers or uh, folks who were doing NLP, natural language processing, or anomaly detection. So understanding those domains and trying to hire those folks. So by me going after these really difficult things, I always put myself in a good situation because I learned them and those were things that other companies wanted. And so I've just been very cognizant of the fact that I need to make sure I'm always stretching myself and always learning something new. And that's probably what's allowed me to to work at some of these great companies. You're so modest. You're so humble, but you're really lovely. And it, it just doesn't happen for everyone. I work really hard too, and I can promise you that Steve Jobs never knocked on my door. So relax, relax. You need to actually internalize that for a second, okay? Before I let you go, which I secretly wish is never, can you please just tell me about Students Rising Above? Yes, Students Rising Above is an organization here based in the Bay Area, and it's uh, an organization that supports just dynamic, exceptional students. Uh, These students, some of them have just unbelievable backgrounds. They are extremely smart, very smart, yeah. But what they've done is they've they've come through things in situations that other folks who just only dream maybe a nightmare. One person I was I met, um, her father came in and killed her brother in front of her, and she had to see that, and he ended up going to jail. She ended up going to a university, gets this great degree, and, and works on. And she was very poor, but Students Rise Above helped her to get to college, helped her to go to a great university. And then helped her to get jobs afterwards. And so they've done this for about 400 students around the country for the last 20 years. Uh, they've produced road scholars. They've produced students who are exceptional. We're working at companies like you said, Apple, Facebook. They're doctors, they're lawyers. It's an incredible thing. And these students' stories are just remarkable, just remarkable. And I, I've been really humbled because it reminds me of some of of my background, except these students are exceptional, <laughs> exceptional students. They're really great academic students and just doing great things. When they asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, I jumped for the opportunity to help find resources for these students who are kind of the future for us. So it's been a great organization and they are just helping to make a difference in this ecosystem and this community. So really excited to be a part of it. That's really incredible. You may have benefited from the kindness of others along the way, but oh, how you have paid it forward. Stephen, I'm going to watch you from afar and delight in everything you do. You are absolutely outstanding. And I feel like the luckiest girl in the world that I had the chance to share this space with you today. Thank you so much for coming on to Brave Journeys with me. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me talk to your audience. You are a true gem. So thanks so much for your time. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are so gorgeous. Honestly, Stephen, if I ever get 
to your side of the world. I don't think I'm ever going to leave Melbourne, it seems. But if I ever get there, I am going to knock on your door. You are just really a beautiful, beautiful human being. You're an inspiration. I'm, I'm so delighted you said yes. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. And remember, the door is always open. So definitely come on by. We'd love to have you. You are the best. Thanks so much for listening today. The brave journey of my next guest is just as compelling and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. And if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. Brave Journeys was created, hosted, and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg and Ursula Ferguson. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.